This is Smarter Care Connections, a podcast produced by the Virginia Center for Health Innovation. Smarter Care Connections features conversations with faculty from the Smarter Care Virginia Low Value Healthcare Reduction Initiative, as well as other thought leaders and partners of the center. These conversations are intended to be informative, but easily digestible by healthcare professionals and policymakers interested in improving healthcare value. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Smarter Care Connections. This month's episode features another thought leader in the low-value care space. BCHI's President and CEO, Beth Fortz, sat down for a conversation with Nancy Gento to talk about the work she has led in Washington State. Nancy is the Executive Director of the Washington Health Alliance, a multi-stakeholder nonprofit that offers objective reporting of progress on measures of health care quality and value as well as a trusted forum for critical conversations about the healthcare system improvement. Sounds very much like VCHI. Since joining the Alliance in September 2014, Nancy has overseen the organization's strategic direction, including its legislative agenda, continued statewide expansion, and the publication of new reports. Nancy is also responsible for the Alliance's partnership with the Washington State Healthcare Authority, which includes the development and publication of results for the Washington Common Measure Set on healthcare quality and cost. Nancy has had a long career in healthcare with stops along the way at the National Institutes of Health, the American Hospital Association, Intermountain Healthcare, and Providence Health and Services. Nancy is often sought out for speaking engagements regarding quality performance, value in healthcare, and how to facilitate collaborative processes. We are thrilled to have her today. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. We are excited today to bring you another episode of Smarter Care Connections. I'm Beth Bortz, the president and CEO of the Virginia Center for Health Innovation. And it is my pleasure to welcome Nancy today uh, from the Washington Health Alliance. We we have worked with Nancy the last few years, and, and I'm just delighted for you all to get to hear a little bit about uh, Nancy's journey and the, the work that her organization is doing. So let's jump right in. Um, Nancy, could you tell us a little bit about the Washington Health Alliance, your member organizations, and your priorities? Hi, Beth. Pleasure to be with you and your audience today. Well, the Washington Health Alliance is a multi-stakeholder membership organization, and we really represent all those who give, get, and pay for care. 185 member organizations from across the state support our work, and we have three core competencies, the first being transparent reporting of performance measures telling the public how medical groups, hospitals, counties, et cetera, are performing. We're viewed as a trusted convener to bring the multi-stakeholders together to enhance care in the state of Washington. And I think that you would agree with me that it's one thing to reveal data. It's another to actually glean insights and drive action. So driving the work to action is our third core competency. You know, I would say overall, our priorities are to advance transparency, to eliminate unwanted non-evidence-based care in our state. And we really strive to be in the top 10% nationally when compared to national benchmarks. And I will share this has been a journey and we have a ways to go on meeting that particular metric. 
Well, thank you. And, and I'll just say from the Virginia perspective, you know, we we share many of those those values and we have enjoyed watching and learning uh, from the work that you all are doing uh, in Washington. You know, you've been focused on reducing healthcare overuse for a while. Um, can you share a little bit more about your, your current work and, and how you are specifically working to try to affect change? So Beth, you're right. We have been doing this work of reducing healthcare overuse for non-evidence-based care really since 2008 in our first public reporting on performance measures through our community checkup. We've done quite a bit in intervening years on, on waste work, unnecessary care, and I know that's a hallmark of your work as well, and we enjoy learning from our colleagues in Virginia too. We're really excited about our current work, which is a purchaser-led initiative to actually drive action to improve the value of care for low back pain in our state. And this grows on work that we've been doing with a group of purchasers and other stakeholders in our state for probably the past 18 months. The goal of this initiative on improving low back pain, care for low back pain in our state is to really work with a multi-stakeholder group driven by purchasers to implement interventions that improve the value of care based on strong clinical evidence. That's one really big focus and goal of this. We're trying to align incentives for patients and providers across multiple organizations and care settings. You know, low back pain is cared for in a variety of settings in the delivery system by lots of different providers. We're also trying in this work to focus on administrative complexities and trying to eliminate them, seeing what we can do to align processes that make care easier for the patient seeking care and for those who are providing. I know for you and for us, you know, equity concerns is a really top priority and focusing on that through this work. And then to the extent that uh, the outcomes in this work can inform policy and market actions to really target elimination of low value care in the future, that would be a tremendous outcome as well. We're really pleased that already eight large purchasers have committed to this initiative. We're in the recruiting phase now. We have plans and provider organizations who have also signed up. So we're just in the beginning of this work and very enthused about it as a next step. Well, we're going to be watching it closely because I, you know, I will share with you that, you know, in Virginia, our employer task force, uh, two of the, I believe, seven measures that they have identified for wanting to, to work on have to do with low back pain, one related to uh, unnecessary uh, opioid use and another related to unnecessary imaging uh, for low back pain. So uh, th this is definitely a, an issue that I think purchasers around the country are, are grappling with. And so uh, we're, we're going to stay tuned uh, to, to what you're doing in Washington. Um, so uh, as you look back over the work that you have, have done uh, so far, what would you say, you know, has been the area or focus that yielded the biggest impact and then which has been the most challenging to address? So Beth, it's it's really, you know, hard to, to, I think this is a great question and it's really hard to think about biggest impact and challenge because as you know, this work is very challenging to get <laughs> multi-stakeholders moving, you know, in, in a direction toward advancing better care. 
But I guess I would just share um, in terms of the biggest impact, right? When we report performance at the medical group level in our state, physicians who are very close collaborators with us and wonderful participants in our work, they all want to be at the top of that chart. You know, working with physicians, they want to be A plus students and at the top of the pack. And the way we approach this uh, performance reporting is that, you know, stating the obvious, no one medical group excels in all areas. There's something to learn from all. And because we have such close engagement with medical leaders across the state, we have them talk about best practices, how to collaborate to improve the quality of care for all. And even though these folks are often competitors, they really do rally around ways to improve care for all. So I would say working with physicians on performance uh, measurement of quality and, and cost is a big impact area. And I would say a challenge, um, my organization runs a voluntary all-peer claims database. And today we're supported by 35 data submitters, including commercial and Medicaid insurers and many self-funded purchasers, large self-funded purchasers who entrust us with their data. We've had quality data for a very long time, <clears throat> dating back to first reports in 2007. And it wasn't until 2017 that payers were willing to submit voluntarily to us on billed, paid, and allowed charges. For, um, for including historical data. So when you think about asking a payer to make available this information uh, for, their, for you know, their commercial business, as well as that of self-funded purchasers who give approval to do so, it's a big trust to give bill paid and allowed charges on a voluntary effort. And we're very proud of that. And we use the data regularly based on, on their trust and and their involvement with our work. Well, and I'll just say from, from my perspective, that that is a true testament to what must be your trusted convener skills because um, you know, we're we're fortunate here uh, in the Commonwealth that our our General Assembly, our Virginia General Assembly, uh, ha has kind of tracked. Uh, the use of the all payer claims database very closely, and and most recently, um, almost uh, two years ago now, made the the move uh, to make uh, participation mandatory uh, in, in the Commonwealth. So so fortunately, that that is a lift we no longer really have to do with with one notable exception, uh, which is of course the large self insured employers who. Um, can still opt out uh, through ERISA. And so um, probably uh, like you, we are, are watching, continue to watch very closely the, the changes that may come out from the No Surprises Act um, and some of the legislation there that, that may ultimately lead uh, to those large self-insured employers uh, participating uh, more easily. Uh, so, because that, that continues to, to be a challenge for us um, but, you know, I, I will just say you, uh, you know, the amount of data and the quality of data that you have gotten on a voluntary uh, basis is really impressive and, and should serve as an example to other states who don't have kind of the additional leverage, you know, that we do here in the Commonwealth. Well, thank you for that, Beth. And, you know, we stay in close contact with leaders of your APCD as well. And, you know, 
look to them for their insights in the way they approach the work uh, and view them as close partners as well. Right. So, so we've looked, we, you know, we have read uh, each uh, edition of your first do no harm reports um, that you've released. uh, And and I'm happy to say that in general, those, those reports have actually tracked very closely uh, with the um, findings that we've had here in Virginia. Um, But can you tell us a little bit about those reports and, and what you have learned from them? And we're really glad they track that because that further substantiates the work we're both doing, right? You know, to see Absolutely. that, uh, you know, that uh, low value, wasteful care is is really unfortunately still a part of our healthcare system and we can take steps to, to eliminate it, right? So we've issued uh, three first do no harm reports uh, uh, in 2018 and 19, and we're proud to be the first in the nation to have reported publicly on low value care at the medical group level. And I just want to tell you just a little story about that that might be of interest to the listeners. So when we release our reports, we talk to um, our various committees, including a clinician-led committee, about the methodology. And we get buy-off on the methodology and approach before we give preliminary results because we don't want um, those who are helping us with the work to be distracted by by the results. We just wanna get the methodology right. And when we get to the point that we actually are putting numbers to the reports and revealing uh, information about, about ranking, we usually do that on a blinded basis first, just to test the face validity of the work. When we released this, when we got ready to release this medical group level report, we showed it to our quality improvement committee, 20 leading docs across the state in quality uh, efforts, and asked them about releasing this, you know, with names of medical groups on it. And the group didn't miss a beat when they said to us, you are obligated to release this by naming medical groups, which I think is a phenomenal testament to commitment by physicians in the state of Washington to stand up and be counted and to do something about results. I would also say, Beth, that in, you know, in terms of what we've found, we found much of what you have that, you know, on just a handful of treatments, procedures, and overuse, you know, not evidence-based care is ubiquitous. It's rampant in our system, you know, as much as, uh, you know, Half of the services we found to be low value in one of our reports for an estimated spend of about $703 million in a four-year period. That kind of figure gets attention of policy leaders and other leaders in the state. And like you, we found that a small subset of areas account for a high percentage of the waste, up to 90% of the waste. And that low cost, high volume tests and procedures really add up. So it isn't just the big imaging and other interventions that matter. It's, you know, other things that matter as well. Absolutely. And and for our Virginia listeners, you know, I I think one of the things that is important to keep in mind uh, is some of the the differences just in terms of how Virginia and and Washington are, are structured to share the data. So as I mentioned, you know, Virginia, while we have a a state, you know, administered APCD that works through Virginia Health Information. And and while participation uh, in that is mandatory, the the General Assembly has limited 
um, the APCD's ability to share publicly uh, data at the uh, practice or individual clinician level. And so if you were to look at a, a Virginia report, for example, you will see regional analysis, and then we have the ability to kind of drive provider change by sharing data um, with the health systems, with the practices, with the clinicians. And, and those health systems, for example, have the ability to unblind data um, across their providers. So take, you know, Centera or Inova, for example, they can show you how you compare to all your peers within your system. But in Virginia, we do not have the ability to publicly identify by practice. And so that's a little bit of a difference in structure. Um, and we, we've actually, you know, we watch and see kind of what difference um, that makes uh, in, in driving change. And so, uh, you know, we continue to, to see how, how that's going uh, in Washington. And that, that's really the result of, you know, some, some regulations uh, here in the Commonwealth. Um, you know, so I, I think the other thing, Nancy, that, that has always struck me um, maybe as a little bit of a difference in our founding is that if you look at Virginia's work and our smarter care work, that really came to be because of the clinician community raising their hand and saying, you know, we need to do better. We want to do better. You really work in a purchaser-driven environment. And so can you talk a little bit for us about how purchasers drive change and overuse? Let me start, Beth, by defining this term purchaser for, for the Washington Health Alliance. We think of a purchaser as an organization or individual who selects benefits for members or employees and pays the bill. And this term member or employees matters because our purchaser membership is comprised not only of large and small public and private employers, but also really large union trust. And trust obviously are purchasing on behalf of members, uh, not necessarily employees of the trust. You know, in general, I think it is a truism that no one purchaser, no matter how large they are, can drive the market to change. Even our Washington State Healthcare Authority, which is an enormous purchaser of care for public employees, as well as the Medicaid program, can't do this alone. And it really takes purchasers working in collaboration, advancing their collective leverage to really propel positive movement. No one can do it alone. And I thought I would just share a couple of examples about how this works in the state of Washington. You, you talked about how does a purchaser drive change. So here are a couple of specific examples for those listening in. Our, our healthcare authority, as I mentioned, they have been a real leader in value-based payment contracting in the state. And as they do their work and refine their work, they actually share redacted copies of actual contract language very broadly. So that allows any purchaser in the state to look and see the specific quality metrics that are being incented, the way the contract has been structured, and certainly, you know, there it is it's hard to completely adapt that contract given the size of spend the healthcare authority has, but it gives purchasers really good insight on the elements of a value-based uh, contract and things they might pick and choose. 
Another example I would share is that Boeing, the Boeing company is a tremendous leader in our market and in so many things, including in, in healthcare. And they, um, about a year and a half ago, took, an, took on an effort to significantly reduce opioid prescriptions in dental care. And that, we have a Boeing leader on our board of directors at the Alliance, and that initiative really led to a board-wide impact initiative focusing both on dental care and opioid use and low back care. So those are a couple of examples of how leaders in the state of Washington help others advance really, really important initiatives to, to improve healthcare in our state. Well, well, this is really helpful because in in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I would say that um, you know the the interest or engagement among our employer uh, purchaser community uh, is a relatively new piece for us. So, you know, when we were awarded the the Smarter Care uh, grant uh, from Arnold Ventures, and and as we were you know designing that program, we knew that. Um, even if clinicians were very successful in their efforts to drive down low value care, that in order for that work to be sustainable over the long term, we were going to need payment to change and, and probably benefit design to change as well. And so, you know, we knew we had to, you know, build uh, collaboration and partnership among, among that community. And so, that is a relatively new piece for us. We don't we don't have your decades of experience. Um, you know, we've been working about eighteen months, and and we are just now actually at the point where our employer group is is working on an action plan to to drive their work for the next few years. And so, it would be helpful uh, to hear from from you and and Washington's experience about you know, what best practices would you share with them kind of as an emergency, emerging purchaser group? So Beth, this is really a great question. And, you know, I think to start, keep in mind that although you and I and others that we work with, you know, healthcare improvement and focus on healthcare, you know, systems is our main line of work. It, it isn't for most purchasers, right? Most purchasers have other products or services they're bringing to the market. And, you know, I guess just start there with an understanding that that healthcare is, you know, oftentimes very, very new to them. It seems very complicated and they know it's mightily expensive. And they're very concerned, you know, about recruiting and retaining their staff. And so, as they approach healthcare benefit changes and making, you know, differences in the way they deal with healthcare, they always have in mind, you know, how how is this going to impact my employee population? Here, here at the Alliance, you know, here are a couple things that have proven to work pretty well for us. We give our purchasers a private forum to discuss issues of importance to them. Uh, we call this forum our purchaser affinity group. This is the only closed group at the Alliance at their request. And it's because they want to have the level of conversation about best practices and marketplace happenings that are free of other stakeholder conversations. And we limit this group to purchasers whose main line of business is not healthcare. 
Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, hospitals are major purchasers of care. So are big medical groups, everyone purchases care for their employee groups, but these folks are not members of our purchaser affinity group. There are other valued members to us, but not of this particular group. And then we do a lot to facilitate conversations between purchasers and other key stakeholders like providers and health plans that they lead. You know, we work with the purchasers to drive the agenda and we set the table for a collaborative approach to problem solving. And, you know, if you have 30 or so purchasers in a room and health plan leaders have been invited to participate in a conversation for something like member access to care or what they are doing on value-based payment design, you're going to get health plan leaders to that table because it's their clients or folks that they would love to have as clients. And it just it just drives the conversation in a really organic and wonderful way. Well, I will tell you that that, that is reassuring the, the best practices that you've shared because, you know, I, I can share that here in Virginia, we, we did make a purposeful decision uh, two years ago when we put our employer task force together uh, to um, not include uh, those purchasers whose main line of business was healthcare. Um, that did generate a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, <laughs> but we, we did make that choice. Um, and, you know, we have uh, recently, uh, along the lines of your, your last comment there, we have started actually organizing some conversations uh, between the uh, leadership teams of our health systems and clinically integrated networks that are working on the low value care reduction with our employer leaders um, and really were um, somewhat surprised and maybe we shouldn't have been that those conversations really haven't ever happened before. Um, that there is not, you know, has not been much dialogue uh, across those groups and that those are really beneficial uh, conversations to have. So I I feel good, Nancy, that, you know, with your experience, that it sounds like we're we're headed uh, in the right direction there in some of the, the choices that we were making. And so I guess, you know, just to wrap up as we, you know, continue uh, in, in this uh, sharing of information, is there anything else, you know, you'd like to, to talk with us about today or, you know, you want to talk with us a little bit about what's next on your agenda? So we're really excited about some coming work we're doing, Beth. Um, and I'll mention just a couple of things. First of all, we're going to be reporting on total cost of care uh, this year. Uh, looking at total cost of care from a risk-adjusted standpoint, doing analysis by um, elements of care like facility, inpatient, outpatient, professional, prescription drug, and ancillary expenses. And we'll show results at a number of units of analysis, clinic, medical group, county, uh, et cetera, for both the commercial and Medicaid population. So we have been looking forward to, uh, for some time, releasing a report on total cost of care, and that will be happening this year. A second big project is that we're adding a cost component to a quality composite score we developed previously. We have reported on many quality measures for a long period of time, and purchasers in particular said to us, it's great. You know, we look at these hundreds of measures, and we're trying to understand if there can be a grouping of these that we can look to and really isolate those who are performing 
you know, the highest across a composite score on the quality side. And so this year we'll be adding a cost component to that score and enabling us to report on value. And finally, like many, we hope to be reporting on social determinants of health. This is a challenging lift, balancing, uh, you know, desire to be able to isolate, you know, more uh, where we have inequities that need to be addressed in the system and the sensitivity around privacy of address and detailed zip code information. But we're moving ahead in that regard. And I would just say, Beth, you know, to you and your team, we we watch the work you do in Virginia. We're, we're very proud to partner with you. You should be very proud of your many successes. And I hope we have continued opportunities to work together in the future. And it's been so nice to be with you today. Well, thank you, Nancy. And as you were sharing those, I, you know, the, this is a recording, so you can't see me smiling. But, you know, I would say that, you know, Virginia is also working on a total cost of care report. So, you know, well, I'm sure we will want to, you know, touch base and, and check in with you as, as we're working on that. And, um, you know, we actually, uh, we do a health value dashboard here. And um, January was the first that we actually um, added analysis there that used the area deprivation index. Uh, and and w- with, the, you know, pros and cons, it's not perfect. Uh, tool, but but you know we we use that, and so I've made a note. You know, the next thing I want to follow up with you on is your new cost component to your quality measures, because you know we we do continue to to learn, and and it's exciting to for you know East Coast West Coast to to come together in these discussions and and see how we can help each other. So you know, Nancy, we're just delighted to to have you as a partner and to continue to be working with you. And thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. My pleasure. Thank you, Beth.